listening to 101.9 WDET. This is Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson. Around the economic recession of 2008, as so many lost their jobs and were faced with financial hardships and difficult decisions, an alternative economic model emerged. It didn't really have a name at the time, but in the years since then, we've come to know it as the sharing economy. At the time, the idea touted the notion that technology could solve the problem of work, empowering the individual to take control of their life through a more person-to-person structure, making bosses largely redundant. However, now in 2020, we know these companies that emerged back then, giants like Uber, Airbnb, and Lyft, have become pretty contentious for the ways that they have taken advantage, in a lot of ways, their workers. Our next guest has been thinking about this topic a great deal and recently wrote a book that in many ways chronicles where things went wrong in the sharing economy and presents a way that maybe we might be able to get that sector back on track. Juliet Shore is an economist, sociologist, and author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Juliet, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be uh, talking with you. Yeah, we're so happy to have you on. This is a really fascinating subject. Um, Start us off by talking about where things stood culturally and economically back in 2008, the last time we had a big economic collapse. What happened uh, that set the stage for this new economic paradigm that we're talking about? So the uh, advances of digital technology um, and uh, and then the uh, recession the financial collapse and recession of 2008-9 are what led to these platforms. Um, Airbnb was started because some guys in San Francisco didn't have enough money for rent. And um, the, uh, the idea was that uh, the digital technology, which has matching algorithms and could basically get uh, users to put in ratings and and reputational information would make a person-to-person economy. So me renting out my spare room in my house to you, two strangers, um, would make it a lot more efficient and safer. It would be easy to find each other. We could vet each other through these uh, reputation systems. And so this idea really took off also because people were really wary of the big corporate giants in, in 2008 <laughs> and 2009. Um, they just crashed the global economy. People were feeling they had too much power, were alienating. And, of course, the other thing was these platforms offered a way for individual people to get money pretty quickly um, and without a lot of hassle. They're really, really easy to join. So, those were some of the things that uh, really launched launched these companies um, right then in uh, 2008, 2009. It's, it's so fascinating to think about that, what you just said about uh, the distrust in the big giants, and now these startups that, that started out of that sentiment are now the big giants, right? Um, you know, and, and on that point, you know, the, the, a lot of the early incentives of the sharing economy included those things that you talked about, flexibility, the, you know, ideas of not having a boss, no office, uh, better money. Uh, but now, you know, this model, it's, it's allowed for a lot of people say worker exploitation, even racial discrimination, lack of workplace protections. So, you know, in, in your writing and thinking about this subject, where, where do you see things going wrong? So... The 
the sharing economy launched with this sort of discourse of this is going to be a win for everybody on all fronts. It's going to be more person to person. People are going to actually make friends. It's going to provide all those uh, new ways to work that you just talked about, an economic opportunity for a middle class who's getting squeezed, and also for low-income people because it's, it's so easy to join these platforms. Um, and the other thing was it promised environmental benefits. A lot of the people who got involved really believed that it was going to help solve the climate crisis because if you have Airbnb, you don't need to build hotels. If you have ride share, which is what it used to be called, mm-hmm. um, People will just hitch rides, you know, electronically, uh, find people going to where they need to go, and they'll hop into their cars. So, of course, that's not what happened. We got a massive increase in um, new vehicles on the road as a result of a kind of the growth of commercial, what is now called ride hailing, but basically commercial driving. So where it went wrong is that the companies took a lot of money from investors, and that leads to incredible pressures for growth. Now, some of them started out like this. I mean, Uber, that's all they ever really wanted was growth and and market domination. So they could kind of, once they had monopolized the market, really wiped out public transportation for many people. Uh, They could jack up prices and, you know, make a ton of money. But many of the others, you know, really had, you know, did have uh, some belief that what they were doing was really going to be beneficial. But the pressures from investors to grow and then over time to, to bring in more revenue, and especially in ride hail where the economics just don't work for those prices that they were offering. That, they, they offered the low prices at the beginning to wipe out the taxi industry, which they pretty much have done, mm-hmm. and then to compete with public transportation. But they can't make a profit at, that, at those prices. So that's a big part of why they started squeezing the drivers and squeezing and squeezing. And that's been the sector where you've seen the most predatory behavior from the companies. Um, and increasingly that's happening in food delivery in part because those companies are also becoming big players in food delivery, Uber especially. Sure. Uh, I'm talking with Juliet Shore. She's an economist, a sociologist, and author of the book After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. She also teaches at Boston College and co-chairs the board of directors for the Better Future Project. And in this conversation, we really want to hear from you. What do you make of the, this rise in the sharing economy and gig work through companies such as Uber, Lyft, Airbnb? Do you think it represents a new kind of freedom and opportunities for workers? Or do you sort of view it as a form of exploitation in many ways? Uh, or maybe is it a bit of both? We especially want to hear from you if you yourself are a gig worker or know someone who is. What has this kind of work meant for your life? And uh, do you feel empowered or do you feel exploited? And what has the economic crisis caused, uh, you know, this pand- what has this pandemic meant for you and your work uh, in, that, in that way? Uh, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave us a comment or a question on Twitter by using the hashtag Detroit Today. 
And Juliet Shore, um, you know, one thing that I really want to make sure that we talk a little bit about is how this pandemic is, and this this economic collapse, collapse is sort of changing uh, the gig economy, if at all. I mean, as you mentioned, um, you know, Uber Eats, um, you know, uh, there there's all kinds of, uh, of of gig work kind of businesses that are offering uh, delivery of food uh, through Grubhub, through all the, all these things. You know, it's it seems like we're relying even more on some of these services, uh, and and it's also interesting that uh, it seems like a lot of uh, these workers have been uh, hit hard by the pandemic. But you know, what is your take on on what this has meant? Yeah, so it's meant big changes. I mean, the first the first thing that happened is is sort of the obvious, which is that certain services collapsed and others exploded. So ride hail collapsed uh, with the lockdown and food delivery increased grocery shopping really increased a lot instacart is a you know the big platform in grocery shopping there are some others um, and some other areas which were really growing fast like care work care.com is the big platform that it does uh, organizes gig work for care workers whether it's child care elder care health care um, even cleaning uh, you know, all that face-to-face stuff disappeared. So that's one thing, big shifts in consumer demand. And the companies, you know, as you say, responding to that by, by shifting what they're doing. And then the second thing that we've been finding, I'm, I'm working with a group of researchers at Northeastern now, interviewing gig workers, is much, much harder for them to find work. Um, on Instacart, people are complaining about bots, which are grabbing the tasks. There was a story out yesterday uh, about Whole Foods delivery workers who are positioning their telephones, their smartphones in trees right next to the stores so they can get the gigs because the algorithm hmm. picks the closest phone. So the competition to get work has been intense. And this has been an issue throughout the decade that I've been studying this sector um, which is that over time, as more and more people got recruited onto the platforms, it got harder for for people to find work. So that sort of chronic undersupply of work, oversupply of workers, which is what big impact on their earnings. I mean, even on some platforms like TaskRabbit, which we studied a lot, where the hourly wage can be pretty good, the fact that you can't get that many jobs um, means that the workers who are trying to make a living on these platforms uh, find themselves earning below the poverty line. And and on that note, one of the things that the Federal CARES Act did was it, it made get gig workers eligible for unemployment benefits for the first time. That's something that I thought was extremely interesting at the time, I, and I wondered... Uh, what that meant for one, but also whether it maybe signaled maybe a larger shift in protections for these workers. What what is your take on that? Oh, I think it definitely does. Um, you know, I write about in the book how beginning in 2018, you finally started to see cities and states coming in with regulations. So New York put in a minimum wage for ride-hail drivers. Uh, regulations on Airbnb. Seattle is now debating a minimum wage for ride-hail drivers. So there's definitely been a a movement, finally, after a lot of uh, failed attempts by advocates to get some protections. So recognizing the plight of gig workers in the CARES Act was really important. 
it's complicated in some ways in California and maybe some other places like Massachusetts where there's a suit against the companies because the law says they should be um, uh, classified as workers, as employees, not as independent contractors, which is what almost all gig workers are. And if they're classified as employees, they're actually eligible for much better benefits. So the company, Uber pressed the federal government to, to give this special pandemic uh, relief to the gig workers, and in part as a way of forestalling that shift to employment status. And of course, there's a big fight going on in California right now about this. The companies have threatened to just turn off the app in California if they if they have to make their workers employees. Yeah, quite a high-stakes uh, game of chicken going on right now in, in California, that's for sure. Um, we're going to continue this conversation when we come back from just a short break, uh, and we want to hear from you after this. Billy in McDougal Hunt and Dennis in Dearborn, stay on the lines. We'll get to you right after this, and if you want to join them, the number is 313-577-1019. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm speaking with Juliet Shore, an economist, sociologist, and author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Uh, Juliet Shore is also a teach- she also teaches at Boston College and co-chairs the board of directors at the Better Future Project. Uh, we are talking about the sharing economy, uh, gig work, uh, whether it means workers are empowered in some ways and if they're exploited in, in other ways. And we really want to hear from you. The number on the lines is 313-577-1019. What is your take on how this rise in the sharing economy and gig work, what has it meant for the economy? What has it meant for workers? And what do you think it represents in terms of a new kind of freedom or opportunity for workers? Or uh, are, do you see it mostly as, a, again, a form of exploitation? Uh, again, the number is 313-577-1019. Uh, and right now, I want to go to Billy in McDougal Hunt. Billy, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, how's it going? Great. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up uh, the music industry went through this similar type of evolution back in the day when uh, you know we had all these great artists that were just out there. They just wanted to express themselves, and they would take whatever, whatever they had, you know, whatever would pay. They and tra- uh, transportation was much cheaper then, and. Housing was much cheaper. You could go, you know, eighteen or twenty dollars. You could get a ride there, and you could travel around and get money for your gigs. And then the and, and the industry exploded around recorded music, and everybody wanted it. But mm. the people that were responsible for the art that was being created was not the ones that got all the money. They were the ones that got exploited. The recorded material was the uh, valuable part of the business. Yeah. They, you know, the Rolling Stones had a terrible uh, 
had a terrible record deal for their first 10 years, you know? Sure. Yeah, and yeah, Billy, I, it's it's something that we've seen with musicians, uh, you know, throughout as well as long as I can remember, especially as, as music has become such a, a huge, huge business. And I really appreciate that point. And uh, Juliet Shore, uh, on, on Billy's point, you know, um, um, he's a musician or he's talking about musicians here. But when it comes to this this sort of larger uh, idea of gig work, I mean, that's nothing new, right? The, the, how does that sort of how do the, the struggles that people who have been doing freelance or, or gig work uh, relate to sort of what we're seeing now with this this larger sharing economy? Yeah, well, Billy makes a great point, which is that. The uh, the musicians weren't getting you know enough of the value of what they were producing, and it the reason for that is that the companies had a monopoly or a lock on the the market and the sort of distribution and so forth. What's really interesting and important about the gig uh, the digital gig work is that these technologies are pretty replicable now. So it's not that hard to build a platform, um, and there, there are a lot of sort of out-of-the-box versions, too, that will allow you to do most of what an Airbnb or an Uber does. And what that means is that there's now an opportunity for the workers to actually own the platform. So in this case, it would be the musicians own the platform, get you know, virtually all of the, the, uh, the value of what they're producing. And what's really cool is that this is already happening. It, there's a big musicians cooperative out of Brazil. There's a, a, a 35,000 plus freelancers cooperative across Europe. And my team did the first academic study of one of these, what are called platform co-ops, which is a, a photographer's co-op called Stocksy where the, because the technology really, it automates away a lot of the functions of management, um, the, the, uh, the search functions, the quality control through the ratings and reputation systems, and it means that it's really efficient for workers to own and control these companies. So I do think that's the future. I mean, it's certainly the more efficient way to go, and it would be, it's so much better for the uh, for the the artists, the workers, the drivers, the house cleaners. Mm. Uh, Billy, again, thank you so much for that call and that that uh, that comment. I thought that was that was really insightful here. I want to get a comment from Dave on Twitter. He says, "There's a denial that people who work in fast food and gig work in the gig economy, uh, in other words, Uber, Shipped, Postmates, that they don't depend on these kinds of jobs as their main source of income." Uh, Uber and Lyft pulled out of California to avoid classifying workers as employees. Uh, interesting comment there from Dave. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Juliet Shore, react to what Dave is, uh, is saying there about, um, you know, the sort of the, the perceptions of how much people actually depend on this work. Yeah, and this is one of the really important things about the gig economy. So it v- does vary across platform. Um, how much what we call we call these workers dependent workers the same the same kind of language Dave is using and we differentiate them from supplemental workers people supplemental earners people who are just you know adding on to another job or whatever so most of the workers on almost all these platforms are supplemental or partially supplemental but the majority of the work in on many of them is done by those dependent workers so. 
Uh, and ride hail is sort of the most extreme in that uh, sense. Delivery comes next, uh, where you do have many more um, uh, full-time workers, dependent workers, and you're even seeing in some cities now uh, majorities. Um, and that's, that's been a shift in the last couple of years. So this is also part of why the push for employment status because it's, it's a really different situation when you're just, you know, as Uber calls it, doing a side hustle um, and earning a little bit of extra um, for your weekend fun or, you know, to pay down debt or just for something that isn't for your basic expenses. We asked the people we interviewed uh, how much of this money went to pay their basic expenses and sort of categorized all our workers in that way. And one of the things we found, and Dave will not be surprised by this, <laughs> is that the supplemental earners, by and large, had really good experiences. They had a lot more control over what they did. They enjoyed the work more. Uh, but the dependent workers were really struggling. And I think that's, that's the really key thing, which is that so far these platforms haven't really lived up to the promise of being able to provide people with a living. And mm. that's what the fight is about right now. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to kind of dig a little bit more into the, the so-called side gig and, and how it factors into all this. This is sort of the, the other people in this equation, people who are uh, you know, already have full-time jobs, but are so, sort of supplementing their income with gig work or freelance work. Uh, full disclosure, I myself am a full-time employee here with WDET, but for years I've been doing freelance work to supplement my income. Uh, and, you know, with the, the the way that the economy has sort of tanked here, that work has also sort of dried up and gone away. Um, again, freelancing, of course, isn't anything new, but I'm curious if you think that um, this larger emphasis on having these side gigs as a way to sort of like, you know, get to that uh, financial place um, where you feel like you, you want to be, does it represent its own kind of new vul- vulnerability, uh, even for people uh, that have some measure of stability? Absolutely. So, you know, back to 2008 and nine, you know, when the economy tanked, and one of the things that that is really key here is, you know, what we might think of as the middle, the squeeze on the middle class. So the people who do have jobs and part of why they turned to Uber, Lyft, Airbnb was because their earnings weren't keeping up. Um, And uh, Airbnb, for example, put out data saying that 10% of its hosts were teachers. I mean, Mm. these are, these are, you know, that used to be a decently paid job, no longer in many places. Sure. And those teachers were, were airbnb because they couldn't get by on their, on their incomes. And so what happened is that as the middle class increasingly got squeezed with, you know, wealth going to the top, to the 1%, um, including the founders and investors in these companies, um, they, they started turning to these side gigs but of course, that also then creates problems for the people farther down the income ladder. Um, if you think about uh, the fact that many, much of this kind of work was done by uh, blue-collar workers, people without college degrees, and now it's people with college degrees and jobs 
doing the work. Um, so, for mm-hmm. example, to the extent that Airbnb is supplanting hotels, there's less work for the the people who clean the hotels or the valets and and so forth. So, it's a you know, in an economy where there's not enough opportunity, and that's the that's the really important part here. Mm. It's not so much about middle class versus working class. I mean, it is. You know, you do see those dynamics, but what, why isn't why isn't our economy working for everybody? So that if you, you know, if you work full time or even more than full time, you still don't have enough to get by. I mean, yeah. that's that's the real challenge here and one which cannot be solved at the company level that's got to be solved at the at the governmental level yeah uh let's go to will in gross point will welcome to detroit today and uh, we're starting to run low on time so uh, if you could get to it uh, get to it quickly good morning i'm a gig worker and i'd like to say i feel like i'm treated fairly actually Hmm. and i like the condition of things and frankly i have a rightfully conformed contract and i want less government involvement in that, frankly. I think the way things are is pretty darn good. I have a lot of freedom, and I like it. Will, thank you very much for that uh, that comment. It's a very interesting perspective here. So, uh, Juliet, what do, what do you think of uh, what, what Will's saying there? Yeah, well, as I say, we did find many workers who were happy with their situations. Uh, in general, most of them weren't full-time gig workers, and I, I'd be interested to know what what uh, kind of work Will is doing. But a really important thing is that there's a, there's a hierarchy in the gig work world in terms, uh, like, like the regular labor market, in terms of the, um, the wages that people get and the conditions of work and so forth. And if you, if you have a, a sort of more marketable skill, for example, you can do very well as a gig worker. What I would say is that most gig workers don't, but certainly many do. And another really important point, speaking to Will, Will's uh, contribution is that almost all of the people, or you know, a large majority of the people who are in this kind of work, really value the flexibility. They value being able to choose their schedule. Uh, choose their hours, not have a boss, etc. That's that's hugely important for people. For some people, it's because they 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 don't have uh, flexibility in in terms of their other obligations. Often, family or a lot of disabled workers are in this sector because they don't know day to day whether they're going to be able to to work. So there are lots of great things about it, which is why. Uh, you know, I got into studying it and and why I really support this idea of the workers owning the platform, because I think then the vast majority could get the kind of experience that Will is talking about. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Well, Will, thank you again for that perspective. Really appreciate that. Uh, Really quickly, let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to Detroit Today. What do you have to say? Hey, good morning to you. Thank you. Uh, When I was in college in the early 70s, there was a book uh, that I was assigned, Small is Beautiful and Economics as if People Mattered by uh, Ernest uh, Shoemaker. And uh, I think uh, his principle was stay close, stay small, and have sustainability for more people being involved. It seems to me that's like a New Deal idea that that we have to have lots of of sustainability for lots of people to live, um, but <laughs> yeah. historically, I don't think. 
uh, I don't think that's going the right way. So just to comment, uh, a lot of what I was asking has just been answered in the last 10 minutes. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Dennis, I appreciate you calling and calling in and uh, listening. Juliet Shore, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, well, E.F. Schumacher, I mean, what a great place to end. <laughs> He's been a, a guiding light for me in my career. And um, that is one of the great things about these platform co-ops, because a lot of these services are local you know, taxi driving, um, cleaning, etc. So I agree. Let's evolve more power down, down to the local. Now, Juliet Shore, economist, sociologist, and author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Okay, tune in next week. We're off on Monday for Labor Day. Stephen Henderson is back on Tuesday for a conversation with Mayor Mike Duggan and a look at what families face as kids go back to school. This is WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for listening.